Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us for what I hope will be an interesting and informative discussion around some of the latest data in rheumatology. My name is Professor Peter Nash from the Griffith University in beautiful downtown Brisbane in Australia. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Andy Cope, who is Professor of Rheumatology and Head of the Centre for Rheumatic Diseases at King's College in London. And we're even more fortunate to be joined by Professor John Isaacs from the Newcastle University, where he's Professor of Rheumatology and Paul Emery, who's Professor of Rheumatology, may be emeritus now at Leeds uh, University. So welcome, everybody. I'm and not today, Peter. <laughs> 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 and today we're going to talk about a recently published paper called the Epipra study, which looks at abatacept in individuals at high risk of developing rheumatoid arthritis. It's a randomised, double-blind, parallel placebo-controlled 2B trial and it was very recently published, uh, and I've got the journal here in the Lancet. So you can track down the full publication and slide sets on the IMID for our website, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. Now, we're very fortunate to have Paul here to lay the foundation because Paul did this a similar study in 2010, the ADJUST study. So, Paul, can you give us a bit of background about this early arthritis attempt to prevent the, those at highest risk progressing to rheumatoid in the ADJUST study that's 10 years, 13 years old, and what the sort of implications of that study and where it went with the field back then? Did it lay the foundation for ACPA as the pathogenic antibody in rheumatoid arthritis? Did it uh, change any management at all? Well, no, first of all, uh... It's got to be credit to Andy, who has devoted most of his life to a Pipra. <laughs> um, it feels like it. <laughs> and we've lived through a Pipra for such a long time. Adjust actually wa wasn't in uh, the at-risk population. They were a population that already had some synovitis, but weren't uh, actually rheumatoid arthritis. But it, it's remarkable how similar the results were in terms of Avatar set prevented any progression, caused regression in some patients, actually reduced ACPAR in some patients, and was only for six months. But at the end of a 12-month uh, period, the, there were fewer patients who progressed to uh, RA than had the control population. And what Andy has done with Epipra is actually extend that, and it's the study we've wanted to do for so long. Uh, and it's really a credit that it has uh, been uh, so successfully produced. And I think it, what we didn't have, because the study was done in 2008, what we didn't have then was the, the good evidence that we now have of the at-risk population going through what we call a continuum of increasing risk before you develop rheumatoid arthritis. And this is uh, one of several studies, but the most successful and the largest and the one with the, the most profound results, which we're going to produce. Okay. So in, let's let's talk form. about some of those some of those results. So congratulations, Andy. Anybody who can put 28 early arthritis clinics together in two different countries needs a lot of congratulations. So tell us a little bit about the background. What drove you to do this particular study, given prior studies, methotrexate, hydroxychloroquine, dexamethasone, Paul's abatacept study. They're a big retux study. So tell us the background and how you got this thing off the ground. 
so Peter, I, th I think it was a, a bunch of different things. I think it was a growing confidence in the frequency of progression. It was a better understanding of those at-risk populations. Because I think, you know, one of the complexities is, is that if you look at the different phases, genetic risk, bit of autoimmunity, clinical symptoms, uh, if you take those different phases, the progression rates are very, very different. And I think if you're going to do a clinical trial where the endpoint is going to be progression to what basically is 2010 ACR ULA criteria, you have to be confident about those progression rates in the placebo arm. No events. I think you're, you're totally screwed. So that was a huge help. And I think what we learned, that the things that really sealed that, as, as Paul says, was, was the anti-CCP antibodies. And we learned from cohort studies that if you have high T to anti-CCP with rheumatoid factor, the progression rates are, are, are increased. And then although we didn't have the data before we enro started enrolling in the study, I think understanding what that sort of inflammatory sounding joint pain looked like was also was also helpful. So, we, you know, arthralgia, whatever you want to call it. Um, and, and in fact, I think, I don't know how the guys around the table here feel, but I think, you know, if we had to design a study like this again, you know, it, it wouldn't be that far off. I think the added uh, factor that you could include to bring the risk right up to 60, even 70, 80 percent progression over a period of a year is is imaging. And, and Paul may want to talk to that uh, a little bit later, ultrasound or, or MR. And it, it, it's interesting because if you look at the, for example, the hydroxychloroquine study, stop RA, where the inclusion criteria were around just ACPA, regardless of symptoms, where, you know, the progression rates were a little bit lower in a PIPR, it's about 30 percent. If you include MR, to that, then you're getting progression rates sort of 60% plus. So, you know, balancing risk and benefit is a crucial thing. Mm -hmm. You know, if you've got low progression rates, low risk, you're going to think twice about a, about a biologic. And, and that really brings us, Peter, to the, to the sort of choice of the drug, because, you know, having something that, you know, works in established disease, I think is really helpful, especially when you're sitting in front of someone who's at risk and you're saying, well, mate, you know, you could get this chronic inflammatory disabling disease, we're not sure, 50% chance maybe, but, you know, we've got a drug, got an acceptable safety profile, and we know it works in established disease. This may be, may be something to uh, to think about. So so I think, you know, that's the long answer. Short answer is I think we were, you know, the timing, the timing was right. I think Paul's Adjust study was absolutely pivotal. I mean, we knew that we needed to go for six months because he was seeing a sustained effect off drug after that. And in fact, it was some of the diabetes data where they dosed for a year uh, and seen sustained effects in preventing progression uh, in terms of you know abnormal C-peptide uh, responses to 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 a, um, a meal. So I, I think I think that's what uh, that's what sealed it for us, and we were just very yeah. curious to see what this drug would do. Thanks, Andy. John, uh, do you believe ACPA is a pathogenic antibody in rheumatoid? It's a really good question, Peter. Um, I guess it depends what you call pathogenic. Um, You're driving the process. Before you go there, though, one thing I want to say to Andy is, is your point about imaging is really well taken. But actually, I think the most intriguing aspect of the PIPRA for me was the multi-autoantibody positive patients, partly because the drug seemed to protect them so well and partly because the ones that didn't get the drug progressed so rapidly. Now, they were obviously a relatively small subset, but that, they, they, that seemed to be where apatacept really 
made a big difference in that subset. Um, Shall I go back to the pathogenic antibodies bit? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's a really good question. I, I, and I debate this so often for for my own research, actually, you know, for our dendritic cell work, we need to know what all transgens to put into the cells. And I don't think it's pathogenic in, I, I still am not convinced that if ACPA binds to a cell, an osteoclast or, or uh, a pain fiber, that it is directly pathogenic in the same way as an anti-neuromuscular um, receptor antibody in, in myasthenia gravis or a thyroid antibody in thyrotoxicosis. I just don't, I, I think there's some interesting data, but it, 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 it kind of doesn't fulfill Cox's postulates, if you like, for a, a proof. So I think the jury's out. And I think, you know, the other element of that is is all the other post-translationally modified antigens that we're discovering. You, you know, so it's it's not just ACPA, really. They're the ones that we measure. But what about the carbamylated and the acetylated? It, 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 there's a story there that I just don't quite understand. I think it's fascinating. And one day there's going to be a big paper that explains the whole thing really simply. It won't be mine, I suspect, but it's... Uh, all right. Okay, let's get back to Andy. Can you tell us the methodology, Andy, the inclusion criteria? And in particular, I was interested in your definition of inflammatory joint pain. Um, these guys had no joint swelling. They had inflammatory joint pain. They could have some tenderness, and then they had either ultrasound or MRI synovitis in um, predefined joints, I suspect. So what was the methodology? Yeah, so we very deliberately decided to keep the inclusion criteria pretty broad. So the anti-CCP was had to be in there, and I'll, I have some thoughts on, on John's comment. I can, we can come back to that a little bit later. And then... As I said, when we started enrolling, so this was 2014, 2015, we didn't have the, the ULAR 2016 criteria for clinically suspect arthritis. Um, and so we left that very much to the discretion of the, of the supervising rheumatologist. So it was inflammatory joint pain of the kind that one would predict would be in someone who's at risk of progressing. Small joints usually, fingers, wrists, sometimes feet. Um, and excluding things that would look like something else, OA, gout, and other things, and particularly chronic widespread pain. The last thing we wanted to do to would be to enroll people who who are sort of more fibromyalgic um, phenotype. So that was broad, Peter. And then we would we did not require any imaging based evidence of of uh, subclinical synovitis, uh, in the same way that the methotrexate treatolier uh, study did, and and Gilkshet's, um ARIA study. Um, and and again, that was deliberate because I think if we had deliberately uh, enrolled people with evidence of subclinical synovitis, you could argue that the disease has already started. Uh, on the other hand, if you took people that had super clean ultrasound uh, scans or MR, you know the the risk profile is going to be different. We just we just know that. Now it turns out, and we didn't plan this, that if you looked at the baseline ultrasound scans in all of those enrolled. Uh, more than 70% um, had no Doppler signal. So, you know, the, these are, you know, these are people that, that you could say that the joint pathology and the majority of them, the joint pathology hasn't, hasn't actually started. Um, and then these people were randomized uh, 50-50, um, stratified by country, smoking, gender. 
to receive standard dosing of Adacept for 12 months. So 12 months on, 12 months off drug. And then the primary endpoint was progression to clinical arthritis using the 2010 criteria or three or more swollen joints. So no DMARDs previously, no steroids previously, pretty clean. I know you stratified it for smoking. You wouldn't have done periodontal disease. Again, a tough one. We'd, if we were going to do that, uh, that could have limited uh, enrollment. Fair and enough. I think getting getting it done and assessed in a really uh, well-controlled way would need some serious yeah. dental input at multiple sites. Fair enough, fair enough. The other thing, the smoking certification, when you read the rest of the paper, you don't sort of comment on what influence that smoking had on the outcomes. So I'd be interested to, to hear your thoughts later on when we look at results, whether that stratification led to any increased risk or not increased risk over 12 months or 24 months for that matter. So you did some imaging as well, some plain X-ray through the study. And, and uh, um, so tell us a little bit about um, how you did it, what dose you used and how things happened over the 12 months. Just the standard 125 big weekly of Banaset. Yep, that's that's what it was. And and the other thing that we were really keen to do was to make sure that we fully understood um, that the drug worked. We set a very high threshold uh, for 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 drug adherence. So although in the ITT we took all, we took all comers, if you looked at those who had at least ninety percent doses, or you know. 52 out of the 57 or so uh, over the over the 12 month period, we could be confident that there was enough drug going in uh, to actually see effect. But yeah, standard dosing, weekly sub Q. Uh, and again, you know, challenging for an at risk population to come in, be told that they potentially got a disease, uh, you know, 50% chance over the next year or so, and, um, and then having to inject uh, weekly, weekly for a year, and then, uh, and then, yeah, the primary endpoint was progression, and we, 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 we took some time out to think hard about some of the other uh, secondary outcomes and patient reported outcomes because I think the, the extent of the symptom burden in this at-risk phase, I think we're still learning a lot about, and being able to test whether there is reversibility. Uh, I think is is important too, because if we're going to down the line try and convince regulators to license this for an earlier stage, you know the patients have got to feel better on the drug. Yeah, exactly. Paul, you had a comment. Yeah, just about the selection criteria, because uh, Andy raised the point about existing subclinical synovitis. Now, there are many physicians who believe that if you've got subclinical synovitis, it's inevitable you'll progress. And others believe that perhaps the only way to prevent disease is to treat them before. The multiple autoantibodies, which not only showed the best response, but the highest progression, actually has rather challenged that. But also, uh, just recently, we've got more information about what it means to have synovitis. And in a Lancet rheumatology paper that came out a, a few weeks ago, uh, we showed that, that actually it was dependent on other risk factors that 50% of subclinical synovitis resolves spontaneously. But if you have risk, other risk factors for progression, uh, if you have all, all the four risk factors we found, it, it, it progression was 100%. If you had none of them, it was zero. So it depends on the time at which you get subclinical synovitis. So including it, I, I think it was one of the very uh, correct decisions that Andy made, which was to leave that as an option. 
Um, and uh, it, it will be interesting to look finally, Andy, at what impact subclinical synovitis and the risk factors did have uh, in the outcome. But the autoantibodies is, is the extraordinary finding, I would say, on top of the, the achievement of the, the study. And you did look at a lot of patient-reported outcomes. So pardon my ignorance, can you explain the SPARA, S-P-A-R-R-A? Because in your discussion, you actually say we need to develop more tools like this to better understand progression. Yeah, so, so this is homegrown. It's not validated. And when I say homegrown, it's Kareem Raza and uh, Joachim van Schadenberg uh, at, in, in Riada in, in the Netherlands. And, you know, they spent quite a lot of time getting a bunch of patients together and trying to start to tease apart symptoms. Now, the list of symptoms they look at uh, is extensive. It is not just things like joint pain, joint swelling, uh, fatigue, sleep problems, but it's, you know, tingling, burning, all sorts of stuff that we don't usually ask routinely. And then on top of the long list of questions, they're asking about severity, but also how long in a 30-day period, people would have symptoms for. So you get an idea of intensity and duration and huge variation. But what's clear is that from all of the things we looked at, the ones that we put in the, in the paper, joint pain, stiffness, swelling, those kind of stuff uh, came up as things where there was evidence of reversibility uh, with, with study drug. And I think, I mean, Paul and John have hinted at this. What we really need to do is to go back to the data set, a little bit like the smoking question, and say, what are the things that are really driving progression and what are the factors that are reversible with with a whole bunch of different drugs not just about a set so tell us the results please so best thought about is on treatment and off treatment so on treatment there was a dramatic reduction in the progression so if you just look high level it's about an 80 percent reduction uh, with about a set compared to placebo. And we're talking 30 events in the first 12 months on placebo and only seven uh, on drug. And then the really interesting thing, if you look at the Kaplan-Meier curves, uh, there is a subset of individuals receiving about a set who when they stop it after the drugs washed out two or three months, uh, some of those individuals progress. So that by the end uh, in the placebo group, 38 have progressed, 27 in the about a set group. And the Kaplan-Meier survival curves don't converge. And we think that that's probably due to a subset, which Paul and John have referred to, where they have these either high teeth or anti-CCP antibodies, or they have what we call sort of five serotypes. So that would be rheumatoid factor, IgG ACPA, IgA ACPA, anti-acetylated protein antibodies, and antibodies to carboamylated proteins. And you know, if, if you ask the question, you know, what is it about those serotypes? And we're very particular about causing them, calling them serotypes because, you know, the anti-CCP assay is probably measuring hundreds of different reactivities rather than specificities. So someone who's got a high teeter per or multiple serotypes, they're going to have hundreds and hundreds of different uh, reactivities. And I suspect that that's evidence of, you know, the autoimmune process really motoring. Whether it's pathogenic, I think is an open question, as John says. But it's telling you that there is, uh, you know, there are harmful immune reactions uh, that are that are going on uh, associated with a an autoimmune inflammatory state. Uh, sorry, go, John. So, so, I mean, just focusing on those high activity patients, want a better word. 
Why do you think Abtasat does so well? Is, is it because it needs to have activated lymphocytes in order to make a difference, if you like? Or... Yeah, so, so John, I, the, the short answer is, that, is we were gonna, we're gonna find that out because we're doing the phenotyping now. If you look at Lucy Walker's type one diabetes data and her abatacep study, what's really clear is that the abatacep responders are those that have high levels of T follicular helper cells and the responders who uh, do well, those levels go down during the treatment period. So I, I think that's exactly right. I think it's you need a process that the drug targets for it to work. I mean, it sounds a very simplistic statement. In the case of abatacep, if you haven't got these immune reactions going on, haven't got TFHs, it's probably not going to do that much. And so the people that don't respond, or rather that progress after stopping drug, it'll be very interesting. Is it because, you know, they didn't have enough TFHs or the TFHs were so high that we didn't treat for long enough to bring the levels down. I mean, there are a whole host of different potential uh, things you could test to examine. I think there's a phase where the TFHs are there and then they're gone or? I think it, I, I suspect it's a, there's, there's a time course. And if we could follow these people for long enough, we would see these things uh, expand. It, it's possible that once, uh, you know, once you, you, you know, you hit the, the imminent RA sort of phase, a lot of these cells are going to go into the joint and whether they're targeted as efficiently as they would in in, in the periphery and secondary lymphoid organs, I, I just don't think we know. Thank you. And do you think the regulators who have to make a decision about uh, funding treatment will say 71% of placebos didn't progress? So how do we pick the 38, 39% who did? Um, and fair enough, about a set 94% didn't progress. And they'll argue over that 23%. So a year yeah. of about a to reduce 23% progression. Yeah. So, so Peter, I think this is going to be the real nub of it. We know the regulators are risk averse. And this is probably going to be the first thing they're going to, that they're going to say. I mean, aside from, you know, no new safety signals, safety's got to be a, got to be a factor here. So I think the question for the, uh, the holders of marketing authorization and for the regulators is, do you only focus the targeted treatment to those who are at highest risk? And those would be the, the, the subset with a very high anti-CCP. I think that the multiple serotypes, I think the high anti-CCP levels is a good surrogate for that. So we're not going to be asking, you know, clinical units around the world to have to get all these assays up and running. So, so I think that's one aspect. It may also be that that you have to have evidence of subclinical synovitis to to change that risk profile a bit. I think in the end we'll get better with the biomarkers and we'll be able to predict those better. And you know, Paul and John are also working very hard in in this area so that we can improve that risk stratification. But you'd be able to say number needed to treat five or something to prevent one rheumatoid, and the SAE number needed to harm was something like twenty five. Yeah. So yeah. you can work on and, that aspect as well. Well, and in fact, Peter, that, that, that's a so, sorry, the, Peter. That's ex, that's pretty close to the number you would need to treat to actually do that. And and actually, that's quite a useful way to to think about it. Sorry, Paul. Well, with with the risk scores we now have, you can identify those with a risk of approximately eighty percent of developing rheumatoid. So you, and that's quite a high proportion of the ones that we now see. So I don't think, uh, and as you say, Peter, it's uh, at worst it's number needed to treat. There may be a, a large number needed to cure, you know, and that that once you've got the cost of curing a disease which is so expensive, lifelong, then I think the health economics could look quite positive. 
Yep. So tell us if you thought the non-adherence of the 25% or the the number of patients who wound up on a DMARD and affected the results in a positive or negative way. Yeah, so we we looked very closely at what we called forbidden medicine. So that was either someone going off to see an orthopedic surgeon getting a shot of steroid by mistake, uh, or um, on, you know, on occasions, physician patients just sitting down and thinking, you know, these symptoms are bad. I want to stop. I want to go on. Uh, go on other treatment. And if you look at if you look at the analysis in terms of uh, progression to to primary endpoint, uh, we're seeing very similar similar profiles. So short answer, those sort of things did not affect the overall result. And again, pardon my ignorance, but what is a proportional hazard assumption? <laughs> so this is a fancy thing that st statisticians love to talk about. They're used to seeing studies where the proportional hazards are even throughout the time. And they get very excited when you have a treatment period and a, a period of treatment where the curves change. And that's where these uh, assumptions uh, don't work out and they have to think of other clever statistical tools to be able to study changes over time. Okay, so any of the PROs that we should really pay close attention to, the pain seemed to be important. Anything else? Yeah, so so Peter, if you look both at uh, the methotrexate trutelia study and and ARIA two, the the ones that that really stick out uh, are, the, are the standard ones we use. You know, HACK, EQ five D pain scores, um, and I think those will hold up. But but I think with all of the information that these uh, collective studies do, we need to think about. Uh, we kind of call it a pre RA DAS. And, you know, with Paul's huge cohort, the work that, that John doing and, and all the other people who are really interested in this, we, you know, we're in a good position to pool resources and come up with those things that are going to be sensitive to measure change. Because, Peter, one of the big problems with these studies is that you're starting off uh, with pretty low hack levels, pretty low pain levels. When you look at the median tender joint counts, even though this is an arthralgia study, the median's one or two. And people are complaining of lots of pain. So trying to tease that apart is, is tough. So we, we need new tools to do that so that we can see change over time with interventions. Excellent. John, you had a comment? Yeah, it's a slightly um, tangential comment. But whilst we're talking about problems, Andy, you must have thought a lot about arthralgia and, and what it is. I mean, given we know there's no synovitis or from what we've been discussing, what is it that causes these symptoms? Because... We used, you know, when we used to use depleting therapies like Campath, patients always used to tell us about a week before the disease came back, it's on its way, it's coming. So I yeah. think that's probably the same phenomenon. But what is it? Is it neuro? Is it neurogenic or is it? Yeah. So I, I, I think this is going to turn out to be a really, really interesting area because I think what the Abatacep study is telling you is that there is an adaptive immune response which is contributing to what is probably central pain. Pathways. And and that would explain why you have people who complain of a lot of pain, but when you squeeze the joints, they don't have much pain at, pain at all. And one assumes that there's this sort of transition from that central pain pathway to, to something peripheral, which probably occurs fairly near to when the the the, uh, the disease actually actually starts. So I, I think it's it's telling us a lot about uh, the evolution of pain in what is effectively a systemic disease yeah. and then for reasons we don't understand it seems to target joints and that's when you get the tenderness and the swelling
Paul, what do you think? Well, when we follow patients longitudinally, the first actual finding on MRI is not in the joint. It's either in the interosseous uh, tendon or in the uh, with tenosynovitis. So they have extra articular problems before, and, and these patients are selected by fatigue or non-specific symptoms. And I, I think a lot of, as you know, Andy, very few people say I've got joint pain. They say they're stiff or they they feel unwell. Mm -hmm. and, you know, there's now two studies that have shown that the consumption of uh, resources with physios and non-specific primary care referrals is many fold higher in the year before developing rheumatoid. So there are all these non-specific complaints which are not non-articular. And the, the articular, as I said, with some synovitis can occur, subclinical can occur early, but that tends to resolve usually within six months. Um, and the one that stays, stays there. So it, it is it it is patients who develop the musculoskeletal symptoms, then moves to the joint, who have all the other risk factors who are on their way. And looking at PROs over time, we're looking at sequential patients. What you find is as they get the six months before they get rheumatoid, they become more and more like rheumatoid in terms of their PROs. Uh, so that in the three or four months before, they, they really are like rheumatoid patients with hack and everything else. Nice. So we better talk about safety. Can you summarize the safety results, which look pretty clean? Some of the SAEs didn't make sense. Nausea was an SAE. Fatigue was an SAE. Headache was an SAE, unless that puts no. someone else. No, no, no. no. These... no I, so I, summarize, I, well... summarize the SAEs. Well, so so the SAEs were the commonest ones with things like hospitalization for joint replacement. I think we had uh, a couple of pneumonias, a couple of infections. Uh, but a, apart from that, the numbers were, uh, were, were were pretty low. So nothing, no uh, cancer. No surprises. Severe septic uh, episodes uh, were uh, were defined. Excellent. So take home message for the clinician from this study, please, from all three authors. Shall I start, Peter? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I think the take home, we can do these studies. We need more. The symptom burden is significant. Uh, and there are drugs out there now that have a that have an impact on that. And if you stratify for risk, I think, as Paul says, uh, the chances of getting uh, high responder rates with genuine prevention of progression, at least on treatment at this point, uh, I think is uh, extremely encouraging. How long are you going to treat for then? <laughs> so my my dream would be that be, this would be more like a cancer sort of thing. So you have treatment holidays. So you get these people at super high risk. Uh, with very high uh, autoantibody levels, you're treating them. And, you know, we've got people who are now four or five years on who haven't progressed, who had very high levels of autoantibodies. Uh, and it, if you can identify uh, factors, it could be TFH or, or, or some cell subset, which then begins to expand, that may be the, the time where you, you go and treat in. So, you know, these assays would be a little bit like the cancer doctor's PET scan to say, uh, I think something's coming back and then you could go in again. And I think in terms of safety, risk, benefit, uh, not having sort of chronic persistent treatment, I think would be something we should we should aspire to. 
John, take home. Yeah, actually, I, I was about to say something very similar to Randy. I, th I think the thing that would make all the difference in the world would be to have robust biomarkers. So not just something that in the blood tells us that the treatment is doing the right thing, because that's when it becomes really difficult, particularly for patients who don't have many symptoms. If they've got symptoms, it's not so bad. If the drug reverses the symptoms, then everybody's happy. But as we get earlier in, in, you know, in, in the disease, we may end up trying to treat patients who haven't yet got symptoms. And, and, as, and equally, there's this longitudinal thing that Andy's just referred to. You know, if, if a patient is doing well, can you predict when they're going to stop doing well and, and, and retreat? I, I think the biomarkers is a, such an important aspect here. And it's why, the, why these drugs, you know, why prevention has got the head start in, in type 1 diabetes, really, because they do have biomarkers which are metabolic more than anything. And, and, and um, yeah, they've got, a, they've got an advantage. Paul, any further comments? Well, I agree with what both Andy and John have said, but uh, prevention we've been talking and thinking about for the last 15 years. It's like early arthritis. We knew you could treat rheumatoid, but it requires <clears throat> far too many side effects. We just needed to have drugs that were as efficacious and less toxic. We now have, we know that rheumatoid is at least slightly reversible with treatment, and can be stabilized. And I think it's changed forever now. Uh, we can, we're lucky enough, we can identify these patients beforehand. Uh, we have biomarkers that can identify patients at risk. And that is going to be the focus in the same way early arthritis was for many years. I think prevention is going to be, I think it's changed um, rheumatology. And it's not just RA, it, it's other autoimmune diseases. Um, and we will see this is a landmark study. We're going to see a change in the approach to autoimmunity because it is potentially reversible. And what is clear is we can start, if we can just halt the disease at the time that Andy treated his patients, 70% had no joint disease. And I think most rheumatoid patients would live with no joint disease. Be happy. Um, finally, Andy did any of your patients lose that high teaser of anti-CCP and did that correlate with a good response? So, so here's the thing, Peter. If you look at the ITT population, the uh, changes in ACPA levels are dramatically unimpressive. So that's the first thing to say. And at the face of it, you'd think, well, what the hell's going on? I think the key here is going to be looking at V-domain glycosylation and how that changes. So you can have high levels of antibody, but if these antibodies are not glycosylated, their effective function is going to be different and they're not going to be pathogenic. So I think that's that's where I think that's where it's going. One thing I would add, um, and I can't remember whether I've mentioned it to you guys before, but one of the very interesting things we picked up relating to ACPA is spikes in IgM ACPA. And these seem to precede onset of disease. And so the question then is, what is that IgM2? Is it related to an endocrine infection or rather some sort of event? And being able to pick that kind of stuff up before, you know, three, six months before someone's going to develop is something we, we need to think about too. Now, we've all been involved in ULAR recommendations for the treatment of everything, including RA and therapies, et cetera. And methotrexate always starts because it's the cheapest and has pretty good efficacy. <laughs> compared with what follows. But now that that's all been turned on its head, Jack's worth cents rather than $30 a tablet. 
They tell me that uh, TNF biosimilar in the UK is cheaper than methotrexate for a year if it's injected or something. So this kind of study asks the question, should we be aspirational in these recommendations or should we stick to cost benefit over time? Will, will this kind of thing rewrite where those recommendations are going? And do we have a biosimilar for a Batacept? And should we do the same with something very, very cheap, like a Jack now? That's generic. There's six generic tofus in Argentina. So three questions for everybody. Yeah. Recommendations, where <laughs> methotrexate sits? Do you have a biosimilar? And would other molecules that don't target CTLA4 work like this drug does? Yeah. So guidelines, we've got to turn them on the head. That that's that's a no-brainer. Uh, I am not aware of an abatacept biosimilar. I think I am aware, and Paul knows this probably too, there have been many that have tried and failed. It's not an easy one to make, and this may have something to do with, you know, why from time to time drug supplies uh, can be a challenge. Peter, I think jack inhibition is a great one to go for. You know, the fact that it's oral, I think, is a bonus. The fact that you can change dosing is an advantage. All sorts of fun things. And I think it's going to come down to timing because when the big boys who make these drugs si finally realize this may be something to do, then we're going to see some very interesting studies. John? Yeah, I agree with Andy. Having said that, I, I, I like methotrexate, actually, Pete. I've, I've, I've always had a feeling that methotrexate is in some way tolerogenic because we get about 50% of early arthritis patients into remission and half of those we can stop the drug and they don't immediately flare. And in fact, we, we've just done some recent work suggesting the patients that respond well to methotrexate have receptors on their T-cell surfaces that metabolize adenosine. So there may actually be something in that. So having said that, of course, there have been trials of methotrexate, as, as Andy's alluded to, which perhaps don't look as good as abatacept. So ironically, you know, maybe the methotrexate is not a bad drug for early arthritis and not as good a drug for prevention for whatever reason. So I agree. I think the jacks are promising. They're pretty, you know, as you know, I've been interested in sort of like Andy and Paul in tolerance for many years. And I think the only thing to that we don't know enough about are the pathways which need to stay intact for tolerance. And so once you start to use slightly more complicated drugs, I think there's always the danger that you might be interfering with necessary pathways because undoubtedly you need to have it, you know, we, well, I, I say undoubtedly, it feels likely that things like Tregs are probably important here and in, in, in getting that disease back to, to to regulation. And so you don't want drugs that are going to interfere with that sort of axis, for example. So I think it's really interesting. You know, it, it is, it's as mechanistic as treating established disease. Paul? Uh, well, recommendations, I think, for this are going to be completely different to everything else we've done. And I agree with Andy, they turn them on the head. Um, Abatacept may be unique because of the uh, adaptive immune, uh, immune system and all those autoimmunity. Jack inhibitors, we started a study of Jack inhibitors in the same population about six years ago. We had to stop it during COVID uh, when we didn't know what Jack was doing. We started again and we're sort of third, two thirds through or something. <laughs> so we will find out. Um, I, I, you know, I think Abatacept has peculiar advantages though. Um, and I think, you know, <laughs> this will just incentivize those to produce biosimilars, of which there are 
quite a lot of people try. <laughs> <laughs> they've, got, they've got to paint it in the States for a bit longer, so they need to get going. Um, yeah. And all credit to BMS for, for sticking with it, basically. Yeah, excellent. Thank you. So, Andy, moving forward, what's the future? What are you going to do? Either follow up this and look at imaging in more detail, or where does it go now? Yeah, so I we have a huge data set that we're going to interrogate. Clinical factors, predicts, we've talked about all of those sorts of stuff. Developing a pre-RA DAS, uh, teasing apart the autoantibodies, asking what does what the drug do to the autoantibodies, looking at the V-domain uh, glycosylation. We've got all the data back using serologics, so we've got serum proteomics to look at, look at risk factors there. We're looking at chromatin uh, confirmation signals, look at epigenetic changes, purely focused around trying to refine that risk state and asking for those who do well on drug, what is the drug doing? I think that's that's a that's a huge question. Um, and then you know, if if we can help uh, the you know BMS talking to the regulators and trying to pitch it right, so the regulators don't say, yeah, but look, sixty percent of your people didn't get didn't need the drug. Uh, I you know, there's a big journey there, and I think helping them with that roadmap and and companies coming down the line too, they they're going to be in the same same position. Excellent. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks again for your time. Just one last job. thought, Peter. If okay, I yep. The, the ones that don't get rheumatoid are not happy bunnies. They're, they're not well either. So it's not just actually preventing rheumatoid. It, it's actually improving the health status of people with autoimmunity. So Do you think some of them are other... Some of them are other diseases, PSA, no, etc. No, a lot of them are unwell, losing their job. You know, uh, there's. Uh, it, it's not simply developing rheumatoid. So there's a benefit even for those who don't uh, are, or may not have developed rheumatoid. But in future, it will be the majority because we'll risk stratify. So thank you again for your time, gentlemen, Paul and John and Andrew. Congratulations on this particular study and the impact it's going to have on rheumatology. If you'd like to know more about this paper and others uploaded to the Immune-Mediated Inflammatory Disease Forum website, you can get detailed slide sets are available imidforum.com. The original paper was published February 13 of this year in The Lancet if you want to read it. Please subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or other podcast media and give us some feedback. Let us know what you think. You can watch this on uh, YouTube. Finally, you can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook to keep up with all the new data on immune-mediated inflammatory diseases as they evolve over 2024. So thank you, everybody, and I greatly appreciate your time.